Hi there, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This episode comes from a live show we did on November 26 with Maggie Korth Baker, who is the senior science writer for 538. We talked with her about different times in human history when people worked together to avoid an environmental calamity or just got lucky. Our media sponsor for the season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Howdy. Hello. Thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, I'm, d- I'm super excited to, to talk to you, and particularly because this is a little different than some of our conversations where I'm talking to someone about just a thing. We're going to talk about, we're going to kind of do like a greatest hits of environmental and or science uh, things that have happened in the past, times when we've maybe changed direction or changed course. That's the goal. Yeah, That's I, Ideally, goal. I know a lot about a little... Uh, ideally, I know a little bit a lot of things. That's, uh, if things go poorly, I know nothing. Okay. <laughs> so just, we will believe you probably whatever yeah. you say. So yeah, just lie. Okay, okay. so to start the conversation that way. Where do, I don't know, should we like draw a card? Do you want to start mm. with... Um, do you want to start with uh, clean water, pandas, or the ozone layer? Ooh, pandas. Pandas. Okay, start with the fun stuff. Start yeah. with the fun stuff. Yeah, hey, yeah. weren't pandas supposed to go extinct? Pandas are no longer endangered. Really? We saved the panda, everybody. Yay! Is that So they're not even endangered anymore? They're not even There's endangered like, anymore. I could go get a panda right now. No, you could not. No. They're all, they are all actually owned by the government of China. Oh, really? Yeah. And every once in a while, the government of China like gives it to somebody. No, no, like, no they're no. leased out. There's a contract. They're leased. I had to FOIA the contract. Really? Yeah, there's a contract. So we, we lease our pandas for about a million dollars a panda. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Panda... <laughs> Not if you ding it up, though. Yeah, if you like get the mileage on right, it, like, right, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, you went over your mileage on that right. panda. So how did we? So they were endangered. Everybody talked about like, oh, pandas are going to be gone. So yeah. how did we? How did we not? Well, let that so happen? there's a couple of things that happened, um, and probably most famously, most people are sort of familiar with the idea that pandas—they're bad at sex. Um, we are all very familiar. familiar. Good, thank you. I'm Can I just ask, is that why they were going to go no. extinct? No, actually, uh, why they were going extinct is because we t- took all of their land. Oh, that sounds like yeah, us. Yeah, that does. It does. It kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, but the, what ended up happening is that we started a wildly successful captive breeding program for pandas, and now we are at the point where there were like 60-odd baby pandas born in captivity every year. Every year? Every year. And the government of China is actually considering ratcheting back panda pregnancies because we're now making so many baby pandas. They're going to have like a one-panda policy. We're going to run out of space to put baby pandas, basically. Um, Is that too far? There's like a panda geriatric center that is going in. There's a panda geriatric? There's a panda geriatric center. Oh. Yeah, Yeah, it's like a... Adorable and like, and a, also horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so. Why? Was, that's this whole story. But <laughs> if, how? I mean, it seems like I'm missing something here. Where uh, they were going to go extinct, and then we had this. What made that program successful? How did we get from A to B? Well, basically, we stopped trying to make the pandas fuck the way we wanted them to fuck. It's <laughs> 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 the key to it's the key to all good relationships. So. <laughs> It's true. Um, you know, we... 
Go on. <laughs> Tell me about this panda sex. Um, so we had gotten, you know, we basically had pandas in captivity on and off since the 1930s. And between like 1936 and like, I want to say 1996, there may be 12 baby pandas born in captivity. Like it just, it was not happening. And when it did happen, the pandas tended to die before the age of three. Like it was just, it was really not a great track record. And then all of a sudden, after about 1999, you have this giant population boom in baby pandas. And basically, what, one of the big things that shifted was that we went from micromanaging their sex lives and trying to get them to basically have sex with the panda we picked out for them when we wanted them to in front of like 15 of us holding clipboards, <laughs> which is not, turns out, not to be their thing. <laughs> well, not their thing. I mean... And uh, we kind of started letting them have more control over it. So once we let the pandas have a choice of who they were mating with, and um, you know, once we kind of started going for a more naturalistic, um, it, it actually turned out that it kind of worked. <laughs> so, I, I mean, a huge number of these pandas all come from the same father, is that correct? Yeah, there, it, it, this was, I, I got a hold of the panda stud book. Oh, there's a is it like a is it like a pull out calendar like? A... <laughs> it's a spreadsheet. Oh, well, um, which is different. like a pull out calendar. Yeah. in certain circles, and it. <laughs> this is literally like our bluest show ever. All right. I'm... <laughs> Okay, but no, so there are, so you got the panda stud book. And we got what, the panda stud book, what did and you find we found the, the, pan, the male panda that had had the most genetic contribution to the captive panda population. His name is Pan Pan. Um, out of 500, and this is, this is as of 2016, because he died okay. at the end of 2016. Aww. He was 31. It was fine. Um, <laughs> How old are you today, Brandon? <laughs> Okay. Um, there, out of like 520 captive pandas, he was the direct ancestor of more than 120 of them. Wow. Pan yeah. Pan. Pan Pan. Like they actually had to, like, one of the scientists told me, and I was not able to use this quote because I couldn't get it confirmed, but that one of my greatest achievements was convincing the Chinese government to stop freaking breeding Pan Pan. It's good. So, this is uh, this is great, or I don't know. Is it great? I, I, it's good. Pandas aren't gone. Pandas aren't gone, which is good. But Yay. they're all so are basically all pandas now captive pandas. No, um, so we actually have increased the wild panda population, but here's where Pan Pan and this wild panda thing sort of I crash into each other. Maybe is the right metaphor. Um, is that while we have put all of this, we put way more resources and energy into the captive breeding program, for one thing, because um, pandas are cute, and they bring in a million dollars each yeah. year. And the other thing is that the Chinese government has set up these you know, panda reserves. There's now twice as much panda habitat that is available than there was in 1984. There's now twice as many pandas in the wild as there was in 1984. All these things are great. 
Um, the downside is that this habitat is separated out into little bitty chunks. So mm. it's not easy for pandas over here to get to pandas over here, which means that your genetic diversity is under threat. So you have like a panda Galapagos. Sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we've had to spend like the last decade um, actively breeding the captive panda population to make sure that pan-pan is not so overrepresented that they have low genetic diversity. But at the same time, the genetic diversity is under threat in the wild. And we're not really doing anything about that. Oh, that's a, Can I, the last piece on the pandas and then, yeah, we'll, yeah. And, and again, we'll open it up for questions in the second half. So, and we're going to go through a bunch of things. So if you have a panda question, you know, take a note. Uh, so, but oh, you mentioned pandas are cute, which they are. Mm. Aren't they also killing machines? <laughs> no? Well, I mean, they have mauled people. Okay. They have. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say exactly killing machines, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, at least as much as they're sexing machines, maybe. <laughs> so not not very good at it. If they if you have a clipboard, then they will not be aggressive to you. Um, okay, uh, okay. So let's let's move on. Uh, uh, Clean Water Act. Yeah, Clean Water Act. Can we switch over to the Clean yeah. Water Act? That's, yeah. So uh, Clean Water Act. Everybody talks about. You know that that Nixon guy. What a what a handsome. <laughs> what a great gentleman. fella yeah. he was. He was the, our greatest water president. Um, <laughs> Sadly, not untrue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, can you just say like yeah. set the scene for us pre in right? Yeah. So it is. Uh, well, imagine it is 1969. I had 69. to check the date on that. Imagine it's 1969 and you live in Cleveland. Oh, God. (laughs) What am I doing here? How did this happen? Why is everyone wearing those pants? Why is your river on fire? Oh, that's a problem as well. It is. So these rivers, they kept catching on fire. Not just in Cleveland, lots of other places. Uh, it and was, when we say they're on fire, like literally... I mean like, like the top of the river was burning. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it turns out that when you like dump everything from the sewage treatment plant and all of the different factories in a town directly into your river untreated, um, sometimes shit catches on fire. Yeah. Um, I literally. I can and follow that. The, and this, this was... This is kind of like the famous story about the origins of the Clean Water Act. It's a little bit true and a little bit not true. Um, it is true that the Cuyahoga caught on fire in 1969. What often gets left out is that that was like the most minor fire that ever happened on the Cuyahoga. <laughs> um, it was out before like the press showed up. There's no photos of it even. It was just that in and out. The big one was in 1951. Oh. And that like burned down a whole bridge because the river caught fire and then like lit up a bridge. Oh, so we we you know we we passed a whole bunch of legislation over a little baby fire. Like that seems I well, yeah. And well, it, well, what's interesting is that we got this legislation passed sort of on the inertia of that little baby fire. And what this what this legislation did was focus on basically saying like, hey, you. You can't just dump shit into the river. Well, why not? I know. It's, it's kind of a pain in the ass. Um, and what that is basically... This is my, my sort of um, barroom way of explaining point source yes, please. <laughs> pollution. Yes, please. I am 
desperate to hear this because I'm at bars all the time trying to yeah, explain point, point source, source solution to people. So please help. So uh, the, the, the way that the Clean Water Act works is that it focuses on polluters that you can easily identify. So your local sewage treatment plant, your giant factory, your oil barons, like these, these very clear, obvious places that have a pipe running out of their building into the river. And so what the Clean Water Act has ended up succeeding at is reducing that kind of pollution. So we no longer have rivers running literally with shit. Yay! That's great. Good. Yay! Yay. That's um, an applause line. That yeah. took a, that took an awful lot of time to applaud for. Yeah, I'm a no. little concerned. Okay, about so it. that's good. So the Clean Water Act focuses Clean Water on Act these wins, big, right? big yep. things. Yeah. Uh, now the downside is that there is still fully one third of the waters protected by the Clean Water Act that are still considered impaired in some cases so badly you can't swim or fish in them. Hmm. And what this ends up coming down to is that we. In focusing on that point source pollution, we kind of made pollution a problem of, for lack of a better explanation, um, Captain Planet villains. Well, that's um, a good. I, I'm a, I'm a child of the nineties. Yeah, you're familiar. I get it. Yeah, we're all familiar. And uh, in the process, sorry, Jim. We'll catch you up later. Uh, <laughs> he's our hero. He's he's going to take pollution down to zero. Um, <laughs> Mighty dog. Sorry. Okay. okay. So, 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 so that's the, problem, the villain. That's well. That's that turns out though that the villain is actually us. What? In, in a big twist. <laughs> um, the big twist is that non-point source pollution turns out to have been a much bigger problem than we anticipated. So all of our lawns that we put all sorts of crap on to make them green all runs off into the rivers and is contributing to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and like there's all of this sort of stuff that is not covered under the Clean Water Act, is incredibly difficult to actually like pin down individual people and be like, hey, you, stop dumping shit on your lawn. Is, this, is that a failure, though, of the Clean Water Act, or is it just like, that's a different thing we should also mm, do? So that's, that's an interesting question. And I think that there's uh, different philosophy ways of looking at that. Um, you could look at that as a failure. You could look at that as a... Um, I guess just sort of, hey, our knowledge evolves. We don't always know exactly what it is we're fighting when we start fighting it, and we don't really exactly know what the problem is when we start fighting it. You can also look at it as a success because we often talk about, like, back to the Nixon thing, hey, isn't it great that, like, we got all this bipartisan environmental legislation passed, and a big part of why that was bipartisan is that we explicitly exempted non-point source pollution when we wrote it. Because the farmers didn't like being called out. I, yes, uh, and farmers, that's uh, another conversation. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I just, I'm curious, like, to, and the Clean Water Act, if, like, we took it away, that wouldn't be good either. No, no, it absolutely would be wouldn't. Bad. No. Because it is doing this good thing in terms of, right. like, those big, like, clearly identifiable things. It's yep. that, that there's like a secondary piece of like... There's a secondary piece that we didn't really prepare for and that we have not been able to correct. So if you've heard anything over the past couple of years about the Waters of the United States rule that the Obama administration tried to implement and that has sort of gotten rescinded slash just sat on, um, 
a big part of that was trying to deal with non-point source pollution. Um, but nobody likes, well, not nobody, a lot of people really, really don't like that because yeah. it gets in the way of sort of smaller business practices that are easier, I guess, in this day and age to uh, to sort of waffle on like whether we think that's bad or to make sound better than they are. Um, and it it's kind of a complicated thing, I think, because one of the things that sort of comes out of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act is in the 80s, late 70s and early 80s, we started trying to deal with some of these non-point source things with sort of expanding, with sort of realizing that like, oh, there's all these things that got left out that are turning out to matter more than we thought. We should re sort of rejigger this and like make it work better. Um, and that actually turned out to be a major driver of reducing bipartisanship around environmental change. So there are several different uh, things that you can look at where basically 1990 is where environmentalism stopped being bipartisan. 1990? Like, 1990. Like you can pretty much pinpoint this through three different, three different things. Um, there's a research paper that was looking at um, U.S., U.S. being a signatory to international environmental agreements. And basically how often, what they were looking at is how often it got signed by the president and then sat on by Congress and never signed. And before 1990, that happened once. After 1990, it happened nine times. Um, there's another thing where like, the League of Conservation Voters is one of these activist groups that has um, voting scorecards. Mm-hmm. for different politicians, you know? And so every year you can kind of go back through and look at the average score for Republicans and the average score for Democrats in the House and Senate. And up until 1990, they're, they're not too far apart. They're within 19 points of each other. Okay. Literally two years later, they are 48 points apart. Wow. And they have just been getting wider since then. Um, and the other thing was also public opinion polls. So there's another thing where you look at public opinion polls, and between 1990 and 1993, the percentage of Republican voters that said we spent too little on environmental projects in the government went from 75% to 55%. Huh. So basically 1990 is where everything went to hell. Okay. <laughs> uh, what year were you born, Brandon? Uh, no, not 85. 85. You had, it's not your fault. Um, I know. It's your birthday. What year were you born? 1990? Um, uh, so, uh, how, okay. Let, I, on that up note. Yeah, on that up note. Okay, last one. Ozone layer. Ozone layer. Uh, this is one I remember as a kid, like, growing up and being like, yeah. oh, my God, there's a hole in the ozone layer. Like, how are we going to, like, <clears throat> close it? Do we, like, have saran wrap or something? And what even is an ozone layer? And why do we want to not have a hole in it. And so, A, what's an ozone layer? And B, why do we not want a hole in it? And do we have a hole in it? And that's a, that's, that's yeah. a lot of, that's C. That's several questions, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, ozone. Yes, ozone. Is three oxygen atoms joined together. It's a gas. Okay. Um, that seems problematic. Three oxygen atoms? Yeah. Yeah. They have a very open relationship. It's fine. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I'm not going to step on your joke. That's great. All right, good. Um, but basically, it is... Ozone is neither all bad nor all good, right? So uh, 
It is a natural gas that forms just, you know, cycles naturally through the world. It's got a layer of it kind of way, way up in the atmosphere that protects us from radiation from space. And those of us who are gingers are very grateful for that. Um, Yay! Woo! Uh, And then, on the other hand, it is also a thing that forms when stuff that comes out of the tailpipe of your car reacts with sunlight, and so then you get smog is also ozone. But when it's at like breathing level, it damages the hell out of your lungs. Oh, that's no good. Yeah, so you don't want ozone down here. You do want ozone up there. So we should be driving our cars up there. In, in the sky, yes. Yeah. Yes, that is... Flying cars is the solution. Flying cars is... that. Ha- so... You're welcome. Um, so how did we end up with a hole in it? It's CFCs. I remember that. Chlorofluorocarbons. Right? Sure, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I believe you. Um, so what are those? Those are the aerosol cans. And well, those, they... are the, those are aerosol cans. Those are primarily a refrigerant. Oh. So they're things that used to... Freon. Freon, yeah. That used to be in you know your air conditioner, your refrigerator, all that kind of stuff. Um, and when it gets... It floats up into the sky. It... Uh, excuse me. <laughs> it burps. It reacts with uh, reacts with sunlight up there, and basically ends up turning into. Uh, or excuse me, I got this backwards now. It is the chlorofluorocarbons are chlorine atoms that then react with the sunlight and turn into um, stuff that attacks the ozone layer. Basically, it just destroys, starts destroying parts of the ozone layer up there, um, and it does not destroy it. You know, indiscriminately, it kind of tends to focus in certain places. That's so interesting. Why yeah. does it do that? Because yeah, because it it's has, like the when we say hole in yeah. the there, it is an actual like place, mm, sort of. Sort no. of. It, there's not actually like a hole. What there is is places where it's thinner than okay. others. Okay. So the place where it's thinnest is over Antarctica. Well, that's no good. That's not good. We should move that. <laughs> to where? Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Some place where, like, oh, we were just talking Australia, middle of Australia, very hot already. There's not, no, it just, Taja is shaking her head at me. There's nowhere good. There's nowhere good. There's um, nowhere good. Yeah. Yeah. I, Cleveland. Cleveland. <laughs> uh, but, but so basically, I mean, you end up with this, with, uh, this hole that they found that one of the love, one of the lovely things about finding this hole is that they actually found this thinning spot in the ozone layer five years before it was announced that they had found a thinning spot in the whole zone layer. But the scientists who originally found it uh, were like, Oh no, this can't actually be correct. Our machine must be broken. Oh, that's interesting. How, and so and didn't publish on it. Cause like they, they just assumed that they were in the wrong and not the thinning. That sounds yeah. so 20 years ago. Um, but so, and what they found is like that it's, that it's thinner and there's less. Yes. Of that the there's, there's less there. in that, in that spot. And yeah. so what, why is that problematic then? Well, it's problematic because, um, one of the big things that ozone does is block UVB right. radiation particles. So you see this on like your sunblock, UVB, UVA, and UVB is a type of radiation that can, you know, penetrate your skin, damage your cells, give you cancer. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, not cool. Uh, and so we, but we fixed it. We... Okay, so this is fun. Yeah. Um, we don't know yet if we fixed it. <laughs> can, I, 
Can, <laughs> can I just ask, is it like, we know that we fixed it, but we're not going to say it for five years? Mm, no. Um, so it's, it is in the late 80s. I can't remember the exact year all of a sudden. In the late 80s, we signed this international agreement banning chlorofluorocarbons. Yay. And over time kind of strengthened it and made it more rigid and like blocked out more and more of them over time. And the peak amount of chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere was like 1998. Okay. And the amount of chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere has been falling ever since. So we know we did that. That's good. We know we did that. That's great. Right. And theoretically... As that falls, the ozone layer should also begin to rehabilitate, right? Now, the problem is that chlorofluorocarbons can last anywhere between 10 and 100 years. Um, And so it takes a lot longer to figure out whether getting rid of the chlorofluorocarbons will actually rehabilitate the ozone layer the way we think it will. Um, We got the first, and bear in mind, this is something, again, we passed the legislation in the late 80s. We got the first hint that it might be working last year. Yay! Um, so we're going to have to pause in just a moment. Uh, and I, uh, one more time, I'll remind folks, we're going to open it up for you all to ask questions of our guests in the second half of the show. But I, And I realize this is a big thing to ask, and we can talk more about it yeah. in the second half. But, you know, these are each interesting stories. They have sort of, you know, uh, ups and downs with each of them. Right. And yet they're all stories where there was, there was or is a problem. There is some... C- Action that we were able to do either as a scientific community, a public policy community, as citizens, right. and then affect some sort of change. So is there something that ties those together, like some philosophy or yeah. like idea that you I mean, I, I, I think so. When I was sitting down writing about this stuff, um, getting ready for this, it sort of occurred to me that it, there's a couple of things happening here. And one of them is that we often break things before we know how they work. Um, so we're trying to sort of fix things without really knowing what fixing it means um, or how to fix it. So it's a lot of like fumbling around in the dark, like like pandas trying to have sex. And it just, it, 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 we, we don't really know what we're doing. You know, we're playing God without actually knowing what we're doing. And that is a really interesting thing about conservation to me because it's very much an experiment and we don't ever really talk about it like it's an experiment. We talk about it like, well, obviously we're taking things back to the way that they used to be and that's never actually what we're doing. Anytime we're fixing something, we are changing it, changing it forward, not changing it back. It's never going to be exactly like what it was. The pandas are never going to be exactly like what they were because we are breeding them in captivity using the pandas that respond best to being in captivity like Pan Pan as the primary breeding stock. And those pandas aren't going to do as well in the wild. So we are constantly breaking these things, not really knowing how we're breaking them, fixing them, not really knowing how we're fixing them, not sometimes not knowing whether the thing that we're doing to fix it works for like my entire fucking lifetime. And the results are going to be something different not something fixed. This is... Yay! No, that's... I mean, that's that's very insightful. It feels like the end of, like, a, a, a sad French movie or something. <laughs> like, you and I will never go back to the way that we were, no. but we will be something different. Uh, 
So what I, I get, and again, I promised we were going to end this. Half, but so, I mean, what I, do you have a takeaway from that then? Like, cause <laughs> I, I, I can don't imagine people shit. in the audience <laughs> like, yeah, don't break shit. And then if we have broken something, I, I don't know. What do we do then? Throw things against a wall until we see what works. Okay. All right. Uh, I can do that. And then, and then probably try and look at it scientifically. Right. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. Like science, science is good. (laughs) On that note, that's a very positive note. Uh, Except when it's bad. (laughs) No, no, it's just good. It's good. No, it's good and bad. It's good and bad. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, we are going to take our seats in the audience and turn it over to the cast, but can you all help me in doing a tremendous thank you to Maggie for... Okay. Oh, I forgot to say, if you have a question, uh, if you have a good question, I will both uh, come to you with the microphone and I will reward you with a sticker. Ooh. Yay. All right. So uh, raise your hand and I will come towards you in a non-threatening way. All right. Here you go. Yes. Is phosphorus at the top of the list of non-point source problems? And if not, what are the top few non-point source that is an excellent question. Um, I know that phosphorus is up there um, because a lot of what this tends to focus on right now is on fertilizer runoff pollution from agriculture and from um, like yard maintenance. Um, so that is one of the big ones right now. Can I, I know that we talked in the first half a bit about non-point source, yeah. but can we just – is there a – is there a good definition of what non-point source is versus point source? Like, is there a break point? So the, the way that I sort of think of non-point source is non-point source is stuff that comes from everywhere and thus legally from nowhere, um, whereas point source pollution comes from a clearly designated place, both legally and obviously. And uh, there's not like, so there's not like 15 different places in the same town dumping bromine into the water, um, but there might be a hundred different sources in one neighborhood of phosphorus runoff. So, I mean, and I was, th- I'm sorry, and I'll come back to everyone in a second, but when I was thinking about this, um, you know, because you'd mentioned you used the analogy of the Captain Planet bad guys, like a, yeah. they're very clear bad guys. But I wonder if that's actually like part of the story, or like why that works. Because if there is like something you can point at that's like right. a bad guy, that's just, we're we're sort of creatures that naturally look for maybe some like thing to focus on. And if it's like, oh, the problem is actually everything, then we just get overwhelmed and it's hard. Well, I think it's also easier to be like it's that dude's problem and not mine. Yeah. Um, and thus it's a lot easier to come up with, you know, one big bad guy than it is to figure out how you yourself are screwing things up. <gasps> okay. Uh, did I say, I, I am willing to come up the stairs. It's good for me to get my steps. So does somebody else have a question? Please raise your hand. Any question? Okay. This row is just, yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've heard so much bad news about like the recent climate report that just came out. Like it's we're we're kind of doomed almost. Yeah. But, but Bill McKibben and other people have talked about this drawdown idea that there's like a hundred things that could be happening, like getting girls educated so that then they if girls get educated then they um, have fewer children, they 
that, you know, they, they give birth later, that you can plant trees in the middle of cow pastures, and that helps to, with the methane. And there's lots of things, little things like that that can already be happening, you know, more vegetarianism. Do you think that drawdown idea can work to kind of save us? I mean... Oh, God. I'm really <laughs> nervous. No. Uh, so... No, we're doomed. Um, I mean, so I think that one of the... One of the fundamental problems we have right now is sort of the struggle between where the impetus for change has to come from. And is it something where we can all just voluntarily do like one or two little changes and that will take care of it? Or is it something where you have to have like a top-down structural systematic change that, you know, eliminates your ability to do a thing or changes your ability to do things that are, you know by adding public transportation to a city, then it's much easier for you to make choices about not having cars, right? Like, it's much easier to do that in Minneapolis than it is out in the suburbs of Kansas City. Um, so it, I think it's going to end up being a little bit of both. Um, and I think we don't necessarily have a real clear agreement on what is philosophically the best way to do that. And that often I find when I, often I find when I'm interviewing people who are, who have problems with the idea that climate change is real, what they actually have problems with is philosophically and um, morally, they have problems with what they think is necessary to solve it. Um, and it's, it's fairly clear to me that it's going to take some level of top-down regulation, but I'm not an expert, so maybe it won't. I don't know, but I think that the top-down regulation thing is largely the driver of why you lost that bipartisanship around 1990, because it takes more top-down regulation to deal with non-point source pollution. It takes more top-down regulation to deal with international problems rather than local problems. It takes, you know, just that sort of thing. And what you ended up getting was in, um, like, the scientists who I talked to who were sort of tracing that cultural shift, one of the things they did was, like, go through copies of the National Review sort of looking for keywords, and they started finding this reference to watermelons showing up a lot, green on the outside but red on the inside. Um, and I think that is a fear that a lot of people really have. Um, that that's communism for anyone under the age of 25. <laughs> and um, it, I, I don't know necessarily how to deal with that. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> okay. Other uh, other questions uh, before? Yes. I don't know if you ever do, but if you find yourself in a conversation with someone who is still a client a climate change skeptic where do you where do you go with that where do you start um i usually start with the fact that the basic physics of climate change has been known since the 19th century and that if carbon dioxide didn't trap heat and trap heat more in higher amounts of carbon dioxide then earth would be like mars um, I, uh, yes, I'll come here. Um, why do you suppose um, so many other countries can handle environmental issues more robustly than the United States? For instance, Ireland just had a, the parliament had a, a major discussion about carbon fee and dividend, and uh, in Canada passed a uh, carbon fee and dividend 
proposal. Why can't we do it? Um, different philosophical underpinnings around uh, what we in the U.S. would call socialism and what people in a lot of those countries would call moderate right wing. Um, so, yeah, I think it. I think it kind of boils down to a lot of that. Um, it boils down to a lot of that, like ethical philosophy stuff, and that is a cultural thing in the United States that doesn't necessarily exist in some of those other countries in the same way. Can I ask uh, the very first? This is a little backstory. The very first theater public policy show we ever did was a debate about oh uh, whether scientists should be more or uh, less or not at all engaged in political hmm. Uh, hmm. conversation or political debate, like very partisan yeah, yeah. things. Or, and, um, and I'm curious in how much you think about this and looking back at some of these other experiences, whether you think that we're doing it right or maybe scientists as a general community need to step up more or actually they've done too much and maybe they, it's oh, got to be partisan... I So this is this is something I still think about a lot and I don't know if I know the answer to that. Um I think depending on the specific situation it's been each of those at various times. Um I get really frustrated with the idea that like science is a persecuted entity um because science has a shit ton of political power as a industry. Science has had a shit ton of political power for most of the 20 since like the early 20th century. Um and the fact that there are, you know, the fact that Lamar Smith <laughs> ran the science committee on the House for however long does not eliminate <clears throat> the power within the Department of Defense, within like all of these other branches of government that science has had and continues to have. And that power has been used in ways that are good and in ways that are really, really horrible. So I think that one of the things that is difficult is um, we like to have absolutes, you know? You like to have a good guy and a bad guy. And um, science, as a capital S industry, as a philosophy, is grayer than that. Okay. Uh, uh, any last question? I am full of fun. Yeah, no, any, <laughs> any one or... One, I have time for maybe one or... Oh, okay, let me go there, and then I'll go to Josh. Okay. okay. Here. Hello, I have a sticker <laughs> for you. Here you go. Well, I was just curious. Hmm. Um, do you think that the price of panda leasing may go down now that yeah. the supply <laughs> versus demand has changed? Be an economist for a minute. Ooh. Yeah. Um, actually, I don't think it's going to go down because the uh, supply outside of China is kept artificially low. Yeah. It's a monopoly. Yeah, so. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you call me Taj? Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> no, I, I have to bring up something that was in the news today. It was this genetic modification that was done. Oh, God, you're going to ask me about CRISPR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like... What's your first reaction when you hear this <laughs> happened with a real human kid? Okay, wait. I, I can do may, uh, just as a slight background. So mm-hmm. CRISPR, because Theater of Public Policy did a show about this, is a, a technology that um, in theory or maybe now in practice will allow you to go in and edit genes to say, uh, oh, we, 
if there's a gene that, say, leads to uh, somebody having this affliction or this sort of, like, hereditary um, malady, mm-hmm. uh, you could, in theory, edit that out. Mm-hmm. This raises all kinds of very challenging issues about what you... Because it's inheritable. Because it's inheritable, uh, Yes, so um, that's the idea of CRISPR. And then there was a story today that supposedly a Chinese scientist uh, had two uh, twins, that, as most twins are too, uh, who... who uh, I mean, before the science gets a hold of them. Yeah. Uh, who he edited, edited the, the genes so that they would have um, an immunity to HIV? Um, to HIV, actually, yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, there are people who, there are people that just sort of exist naturally who have a altered version of this one gene that makes them immune to HIV. And so they were basically going into two normal, if, if this is accurate, they were supposedly going into a couple of normal embryos and trying to alter them in the same way. And so all the prefaces, it's actually, as far as everything I've read, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure this is legit. There's been other stuff in the past out of Chinese labs that was announced. Like, I think some cloning things in the past that turned out not to have actually happened. Um, And it's never been, none of this has been published in any peer-reviewed literature. It's just like the dude started announcing it to people. He hired a PR rep last week and then started announcing it to people this week. Um... I think my f- <laughs> my first thought was that his PR game is really interesting. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, like, obviously he chose this particular thing with that in mind. Um, I mean, like, there's a lot of different things you could have used CRISPR on. Deleting or damaging something is easier than trying to fix something. So, theoretically, that should have been easier to do. Also, it's something that, like not even the Chinese government said you should have been able to do. Like, there was a, an advisory that's not entirely clear whether that was, like, had legal force or not. I'm getting off track. But um, it, obviously he chose the HIV thing also because it had good PR value. Any other... I mean, because probably part of her question was about uh, should we be terrified about gene editing? Oh, I... Maybe. Okay, <laughs> great. Good. Uh, see you in 30 years. Okay, so this is my last... I, I'm sorry, Josh. I will, I'll buy you a drink after the show. I, so I ran over your question. We ran out of time. Because I really wanted to ask this last piece, because it's something I think yeah. about a lot. Um, looking back at these stories, looking at like challenges that we have going forward, you are in this very interesting position where you are a science writer. You're a storyteller. You're very good at telling stories. I, not all scientists are very good at telling stories. What? I know. Uh, shocker. But I'm, I'm curious how you think about like that value of the storytelling piece mm. and whether that is part of the work and whether we should be valuing that differently. Because we do kind of The work of scientists or the work of mine? The, the work... Well, your work. How much should we be valuing you? A lot uh, more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking more generally that we sometimes like cordon off science, like we were saying before, almost right. like it's supposed to like just sort of put out like this boring report or whatever, yeah. and then somebody will maybe tell us what it means. And I'm wondering if there is some element that maybe some of these things that happened that were good mostly for helped 
were partially moved forward because there was a story that was attached to them or because they were uh, yeah. they were crafted in a way. And if that's part of what we should be thinking about. So this is an extremely self-serving answer. Go nuts. Um, I, I kind of... I have some philosophical reasons why I like having the storytellers not be the scientists. Um, and one of the big things is that we often tell our own stories in a different way than the people affected by our stories would tell our stories, right? So um, I would talk about my life in a different way than probably, you know, 20 years from now, my five-year-old daughter would talk about my life, right? And um, both of us could could tell facts, but we might have a completely different spin on it, and she might have very good reasons why she's in horrible therapy. And I might have very good reasons why she shouldn't have been in horrible therapy. And it, I, I think there's that element to when you're talking about science, particularly like science that affects large swaths of the public as well. Um, you know, there's such a thing as a scientist being able to tell a story too well and shaping the narrative in a way that eliminates all the other voices. And I think a really good example of that is if anybody's ever read The Double Helix um, and came away with uh, James Watson's version of reality, um, you probably got a very different version than, uh, well, basically everybody else. Um, You know, it's, uh, I think there are... There is an ethics and a responsibility to storytelling that journalists don't even necessarily value in the way it should be valued, and that people who aren't having that responsibility hammered into them for years definitely don't value. Um, you know, we have a we have a classic essay that we're all sort of forced to read in journalism school and then like come back years later and read and feel like we've read it for the first time called The Journalist and the Murderer that's basically about how you fuck people up by telling their stories because you have to choose one narrative and it's not necessarily the way they would tell that story and you can end up damaging them even as you are doing a service in other ways and that is, I think, something that is important to pay attention to, particularly when you're talking about things as powerful as CRISPR and um, climate change and all of these other places where science has power. On that very sobering but very important note, can we do a tremendous round of applause? Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.